Sally Forum. We're broadcasting live from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America and also the home to the Iowa State Fair where you can get 82 things to eat on a stick. We'll talk about that in a minute. We'll also talk later in the program. In, in decreasing order of nutritional value. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't believe some of the things they're, they're putting on a stick these days. Uh, we'll also talk about affirmative action for white people. We'll talk about the, uh, the latest on 3D printed guns. Get yours now while they last. Uh, we'll talk about how the right has weaponized the First Amendment. And later in the program, we'll discuss how produce just is not the same as it used to be. And also, we'll talk about if you love warm water, you're going to love the Earth's oceans in the new climate era. But uh, let's take a second to say thanks to the folks here at Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM for providing this great studio for us to do this program in. Uh, thanks to those of you tuning in on Facebook. Uh, you can always check out the program, at least part of the program, on the live stream on the Fallon Forum Facebook page. And, of course, you can always get a podcast of this program after the fact on the Fallon Forum website. All right, so with me, with me in the studio, um, Dr. Charles Goldman. Can't seem to get rid of him. He keeps coming back to bother us. Uh, <laughs> uh, here he is. Uh, Charles, how you doing? Good. So uh, you're going, here, going to the fair today. Huh? I'm going to the fair today. Yeah, we're, uh, my, my, my kids are in town. Kathy, me, the kids, we're all going to the fair. And I'm going to enter the accordion competition, which I – this is a bad habit I developed years ago. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where is the accordion uh, competition? Well, it's in the basement of, of, of a building, uh, way deep down in a bunker, so that nobody can know what's actually happening. It's very soundproof, so nobody hears yeah. it. No, it's in Pioneer Hall, and remarkably, people – I mean, the place is always packed. I don't yeah. get it. Why are people coming to hear an accordion when you can, like, do anything else? This is this is the hall that's sort of at the top of the hill. Yeah, yeah. yeah Pioneer yeah. Hall. Right, right okay. next to the old, uh, old farm equipment. Right, exactly. Which some people still use. <laughs> Meaning, by some people, I mean me. Correct. <laughs> well, that's, that's later in the show. Well, that's later in the show. Right, right, right. So, anyway, the, you know, America's Fair. You, uh, you know, it's been getting some flack in recent years, and, you know, all of it deserved. Uh, <laughs> I know. I went to the, I went to the parade. Uh, oh, you did? Good. With, with Grayson. And um, they had, you know, uh, a tractor pulling a flatbed with the State Fair board on it. And um, it was a you know bunch of 70-year-old white guys and one woman. <laughs> <laughs> so not exactly a representative group. <laughs> well, what else is new, eh? Exactly. But, and that's changing. But, uh, but I mean – I've never. I, I will say I, I, I often get a, a funnel cake, which is not exactly a health food, mm -hmm. but that's my annual funnel cake indulgence. Right. And I often get it. And you hero. put the powdered sugar on it too. Sure. What's, what good is the funnel <laughs> cake? Well well go. Go. Yeah, <laughs> might as well. Go all the way. It's already sweet as heck and deep fried. Go for right. the powdered sugar part. Okay. But I've never yet gotten a something to eat. I mean, I really hesitate to use the word food, but something to eat on a stick because some of this stuff, I don't know if it really qualifies as food. Uh, well, the, the, the deep-fried stick of butter is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, you, you're speaking from personal experience? Uh, no, I wouldn't go near that. But I, I, I see they've had one gluten-free item this year. Yes, you're going to be all over that, right? That's right. The yeah. gluten-free corn dog. Yeah, you're going to be all over that? Oh, yeah. Really? No. No, okay. Absolutely not. How about the veggie corn dog? Well, you know, I, the, I, I like the idea, but uh, no. I want to know what unicorn lollipops is. I have no idea. They, they, I, yeah. I, didn't even, I didn't even know there was an open season on, on unicorns. I thought they were like off limits right. to any, any hunting. But maybe under the Trump administration, <laughs> as animals are coming off the endangered species list and more animals are being considered fair game, maybe, maybe unicorns are now something we can hunt. Yeah. Well, I mean <laughs> – Okay. And, and, you know, the Iowa State Fair is obviously not unique in this. I think if you go to any state fair, 
uh, particularly in the Midwest, you're going to encounter many of these foods. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of great stuff at the state fair too. I, I mean, I, I love I love going to check out the animals. Yeah, I don't know how, you, how I don't know how you, Mister Vegan Doctor, feel about that part, but well, we, we're we're going to take Grayson over to look at some of the the barns. Okay, yeah, and the inside of the barns as well, and the inside of the, actually the actual inside of the barns. I, I I find it interesting when the whole family has moved in, you know, with the oh yeah, they're, you know, they're with, sleeping there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it, it, <laughs> Having, you know, having grown up in New York, this is not New York City. This is not the uh, culture of of the large city, which is why it is it is pretty fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and it's um. Do you do, you do the gondola? Um, I would, but I don't think uh, Grayson will go up that high. Yeah, All right. yeah. <laughs> just yet. It is amazing to me that that thing stays on one small hook and doesn't fall off. Yeah, right? yeah. To me, uh, to me, and this is just me, the political wonk. The most interesting thing about the state fair is the uh, the soapbox, the Des Moines mm-hmm. Register soapbox, where politicians come in and give a ten or so minute speech. Yeah, uh, usually fairly well attended and always covered by, of course, the Des Moines Register. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though we haven't even had the midterm election yet, there are seven presidential candidates at least, and maybe more since I last checked. Yeah, uh, that are that are slated to or who have already spoken. Yeah, it's like incredible. The, yeah, for the Democrats, like the MSNBC uh, lineup, you know, the <laughs> ones right, who are right, interviewed right. pretty much every night. Yeah, yeah, I won't be seeing that when I watch Fox this week, though. No, well, I, <laughs> maybe Fox will pick up uh, pick up Governor Kim Reynolds. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would, yeah, I would think yeah. so. But yeah, I mean, all the congressional candidates. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I think Steve, even Steve King, is speaking at the state fair. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to know when that is. Yeah. That you know, be. you know, there were two candidates back in 2016 who refused to. You, uh, use the the uh, registered soapbox. Yeah. You want to guess who they were? Uh, I have no idea. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> and they arrived on the same day. Really? So and they both avoided the soapbox. Uh-huh. And did Obama speak out there? Yeah, yeah. Obama spoke. Uh, okay. So not, n- not last time around, but yeah. So not participating is not predictive of successful successfully being nominated. Apparently, well, now that's been. I guess. Uh, I guess that track record has proven been proven because I remember yeah. uh, when when John Andrews was running. I mean, I remember walking in with him and mm-hmm. giving him talking points on on KFOs, uh, on the way to the soapbox. Yeah. Did he <laughs> Did he use them? Yes, he did. But. Uh, Bernie Sanders had the largest crowd I've ever seen anybody have at the soapbox. But mm-hmm. while um. While Trump and Clinton were both avoiding that opportunity, right. they were both meandering their way to the butter cow. <laughs> uh, and, and Trump arrived at the state fair in his private helicopter. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the problem with all – I love the fact they come, but at the same time, it's such pandering. You know, and, and they all do the same thing. They go out there and they put something – some disgusting fried food, you know, or they'll go cook – yeah. Some pork chops. Usually it's a corn dog. Yeah. And there have been some very – there have been some horribly politically devastating photographs of candidates wolfing down a corn dog. <laughs> Who, in, Michelle Bachman was the uh, was probably the worst. <laughs> but Rick Perry didn't do too well with one either. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone had to explain to him what it was. Uh, probably. Because remember, <laughs> in, in terms of, of, of somebody low IQ, as our president likes to say – um, his Department of Energy chief has to be one of them. You don't hear much about him anymore. No, I mean, it's like he's totally invisible. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 maybe that's just the way Trump likes his uh, his uh, agency heads. It, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, Scott Pruitt was a little bit too uh, forefront for him. All right. So, hey, I'm curious what folks are going to be doing at the State Fair. Um, I'm going to be playing the accordion and the accordion competition, checking out the Avenue of Breeze. What, what are you going to be playing as your selection? 
Uh, it's a surprise. You'll have to come and find out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm going to share it later. Why don't you maybe have Kathy live stream it? Yeah, we're going to live stream it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and well, I'll be looking for you in the back of the Pioneer Hall dancing. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I know how much you love to dance in public. Do they just leave the stuff in Pioneer Hall all year? You know, the, like the train sets from the 1800s and all the other things? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Good question. <laughs> Good question. Because it seems like every time I go, it's the same things yeah. that are in that place yeah, yeah. every time. Yeah. <laughs> I, it very well could be. Yeah, I'm it wouldn't sure. surprise me. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm curious what other folks are going to be doing at the State Fair. Stick that on this uh, Facebook feed if you uh, feel like it. Um, again, for me, it's accordion competition. Gondola ride. Checking out the um, – the uh, uh, what's the building called that has all the new newfangled stuff in it up by the wind turbine? Um, I'm blanking on it. Uh huh. Um, yeah, and also the uh, Avenue of Breeds and some of the other right. barns. Which is the building so, where they, they sell all the uh, hot tubs for a discount? Oh, that's uh, that's <laughs> the, isn't that the Varied Industries building? I, yeah, is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So next, I like the one where they do the chicken washing. <laughs> chicken washing. <laughs> now I, I'll go to the fair once this year, but next year. My coworker and I, Sherry Herdina, we'll probably go, um, oh, maybe four or five or six times mm-hmm. because we go there to to track the candidates running for president and to try to hold them accountable on the urgency of a climate mobilization. Yeah. We had some real success with that a couple of years ago. And uh, hopefully, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have a big field of Democratic candidates. Hard to say mm-hmm. what's going to happen on the Republican side, but there's no doubt there'll be a lot of these these folks coming to the state fair to speak. So we'll see how that goes. Yep. Charles, I'll see you there. Well, in, in that situation, I might go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Bird dogging candidates is fun. All right. So um, we're going to take a, a second here to recognize some of the uh, local businesses that helped make this uh, program possible. I want to uh, recognize Gateway Marketing Cafe located at 20th and Woodland in the uh, Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Uh, also a catering service. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Uh, they cover the full range of insurance options, I think, except for health. Uh, no appointment needed. Um, free, uh, free estimates. Also thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with great service. And also thanks to Community CPA and Associates with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Uh, for all your tax and accounting needs, give Yingsa at Community CPA a shout. Okay, so um, on to our next topic, uh, Charles. Um, affirmative action has long been considered by folks on the political left as a really great thing. Um, Correct. And uh, for folks on the other side, it's increasingly been under attack with some, you know, blasting it as uh, as ruining opportunities for people who, um, you know, white folks who are qualified and aren't getting the advancement, whether to be into the college of their choice or to the job of their choice. They're not getting the advancement that they have earned and deserved because – because other folks, um, racial minorities, women are, are, being, are being taking their spots. Taking their spots. That's that's right. a, that's kind of as best I can articulate. That's the argument on the other side against affirmative action. Which again, we've seen some serious legislative efforts to scale it back or repeal it. Well, I, I think we'll see them again because of the Kavanaugh nomination. Um, that they they will try to readdress this at the Supreme Court level once again. And has he made it clear that he is opposed to uh, affirmative action and willing to scale it back or repeal? It, it would appear, given his libertarian <clears throat> and conservative leanings, that he would be. 
opposed. Um, I don't know that that's one of the specific issues that's come up. I doubt they'll even ask him that because they're going to be all concerned about Roe v. Wade. Um, and he'll make some comment, of course, that he won't talk about something that may come before the court. Um, and, of course, you know, we do have Clarence Thomas on the court. Um, and his view of affirmative action as an African-American man is that affirmative action demeans his achievements because other people look at him and um, would say, well, the only reason he's on the Supreme Court is because he's an African-American male and they needed that on the court. I mean, looking at his jurisprudence and his uh, his, his general conduct on the court, you probably could make the <laughs> argument he is an affirmative action uh, appointment. But um, – you know, if you remember a year ago, uh, this weekend, in fact, uh, as was on the news quite a bit, in Charlottesville, the white supremacists who were marching through Charlottesville were uh, chanting what? We will not be replaced. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right, right, right. That was their chant. And, of course, the assumption was they were not going to be replaced by African-Americans. They were not going to be replaced by Jews. They were not going to be replaced – you know, by others. Presumably by women as well. Correct. And and the assumption in the American or the way it's presented is that is that it's the minorities that benefit from affirmative action. Interestingly, you know, people who have studied affirmative action, the history of affirmative action, have shown that the biggest beneficiary of affirmative action because of the law, the law, the changes in the law and judicial rulings surrounding it were white females. And still we all know that there's a glass ceiling and everything else. Mm -hmm. But um, they were actually the biggest beneficiaries. Now, what's interesting um, is that there may be there – there was a civil case going on in Massachusetts brought by Ed Bloom. Ed Bloom is the lawyer who found the cutout uh, – what, what was her name? Uh, I think it was Debbie Fisher was the, the woman in Texas claiming that somebody took her spot at UT Austin hmm. because of racial preferences that are given or considered in admissions at UT. She lost, actually, at the Supreme Court because one of the things it turned out was she actually didn't even have the academic credentials to be admitted to UT. Well, that took some Austin. Guys. Right. But So Bloom is back with another case, interestingly, on the part of Asian Americans at Harvard. And it, the documents that have come out of that have really uh, brought to light some very interesting things about Harvard. Um, the degree to which things such as your parents having gone there, your parents being donors, all the other things are taken into consideration. But in terms of the Asian Americans, what the the prediction should be that Asian American population at Harvard should parallel that of UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley does not, by California law, take into account racial preferences or balancing the the uh, student population to be diverse, whatever that means. Um, and UT, UC Berkeley has about 40% Asian Americans, and Berkeley is the flagship, obviously, of the UC system. Yet um, Harvard has had only about 20% Asian Americans for the last maybe 10, 15 years. And when they, what the suit has brought out is that the way the Asian Americans are depicted in terms of their personalities, which is a big part of the score, is a subtle racism that goes on to essentially bring them down the list. And then there's something that happens that um, is called the LOP, 
The LOP. The LOP, Not in which it. the deans get together at the end of the process. And lop off. At, right, exactly. <laughs> and lop off to get the appropriate diversity of the population at uh, Harvard. This is also coming up in New York City where the special high schools, uh, there are two special high schools, three, three special high schools in New York City that are citywide high schools. And same thing's happening there. That they're using testing, which Asian Americans would would predict to be 60% of the population at these special high schools. Mm. And they're also not represented to that level. And of course, the beneficiaries of not putting Asian Americans in spots is primarily white kids. Yeah, you know, and, and I thought there was a New York Times article on this that I thought made, mm-hmm. uh, made a really good point, um, saying that today's socioeconomic order has been significantly shaped by federally backed affirmative action for whites. And so folks say, well, what does that mean? Well, the most important pieces of American social policy, the minimum wage, union rights, Social Security, even the GI Bill, created during and just after the Great Depression, conferred enormous benefits on white while excluding most Southern blacks. And one would ask, well, how did those programs exclude Southern blacks? Well, you had Southern states. Um, Southern Democrats in Congress uh, carved out occupational exclusions, you know, empowering local officials who were hostile to black advancement to administer the policies, um, preventing anti-discrimination language from appearing in social welfare programs, uh, lots of different ways. And so uh, folks who argue against affirmative action forget that the, uh, many, of the, many of the cornerstones of our you know, federal and state policy that have tried to lift people up, either in the workplace or educationally or, or just in social, socially generally, have really amount to affirmative action. I think that's a really good point. Well, but the other, the other thing to understand is that getting more diversity in, in the various economic strata in the United States creates stability in the United States. Because mm-hmm. people increasingly, except obviously you know, for many of the Trump voters, um, <laughs> identify with their they, – they tend to identify and their attitudes reflect their economic class. Um, and what we're going through now in the United States is where we're moving away from that to a uh, identity that's political, affiliation, and color of skin. I mean, let, let's get away from the idea that there's anything that's truly exists that's race. Okay, the, for, the, it's a misnomer. What people are being classified by is the color of their skin. The color of your skin is a minor genetic characteristic. And we know that if you look at, if you were to group people by the color of their skin, there is more, there is more diversity of capabilities within the color of your skin groups than there is between comparing the color of the skin groups to each other. You're, you're speaking as a physician now. I'm speaking as a scientist <laughs> and a genetics a person, as a physician right. who knows genetics. So diversity. Is, it's nonsense to base it on color of your skin. The other thing people are reacting to is what happened in the 70s at the advent of affirmative action. Because I was in medical school at the time. And, and what it was at that time the idea of let's just get somebody here who fits the 10% African-American group that we're going to get. But these people were – the people they chose were not prepared mm-hmm. necessarily to be able to, to, to finish med school. Right. So a lot of those people, a lot of those kids never finished. Same thing happened at the colleges. You know, so, I, so, so at what point, I mean, again, part of the argument has been that, well, affirmative action, maybe that was okay just to try to, you know, achieve some 
you know, opportunity for disadvantaged populations. But at some point, you know, you've accomplished that or you've gone as far as you can with that and you've, you've got a certain level of equity now where the affirmative action programs are no longer necessary. How do you respond to that? Is there, is, is there a point at which that would be the case? Um, if we haven't arrived at it, uh, you know, when would that, when, when would that occur? Or is it, or is it all, are we always going to need some level of balancing? Um, I, I, I personally, having done admissions work for the UC system at the med school level, I don't have a problem with having race for whatever it means, and I don't believe it truly exists, and especially in a, in a world in which you're seeing far more intermarriage between the supposedly traditional races. Race has no meaning in this country anyway. Um, I don't have a problem with that, giving somebody a couple of points one way or the other, because you don't, it's not going to work to have medical school classes that are 80% white men, because white men are only going to go certain places in this country to practice medicine. So you have a need for people who would go back to their own communities, perhaps, to do the work of our society. Now, now, some would say, again, that the, some of the most underrepresented areas in the country in terms of medical access are rural areas. That's correct. And That's correct. So taking a bunch of kids who are all children of urban kids, of upper middle class urban kids, doesn't make any sense either. See, so I, 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 that, I think you make a good point. Everyone's against affirmative action. Or not, I don't want to say. The people who oppose affirmative action, it's always talking about the issue of race, this concept that doesn't really exist. But a great point is if you're only going to take certain economic class of people, you're going to get those people going back to cities and doing exactly what their parents did. That's a diversity that, in fact, is far more important. And by virtue of taking people from rural communities, by virtue of taking people from more indigent communities and cities, you are going to end up with racial diversity. You don't actually need to use race. In fact, what was interesting is when they stopped at Harvard, um, you know, keeping the number of kids coming from California down to a level they thought was correct, wow, more Asian-American kids suddenly... Yeah. Got into Harvard. So you're right. Let's move away from this ridiculous use of race as the only affirmative so, um, action. You know, one component. more question before we uh, sure. take a break here. Uh, do, do, you, do you foresee? Let, let's presume. Well, I mean, we, we've had a re, we've had a very strong Republican Congress for the past um, couple of years, and uh, yeah, we haven't seen real momentum or initiative on this issue. Why not? Well, I think most people see it as a, as a judicial issue. Um. So you think the they the, undermine they undermine things like government contracts that go preferentially to affirm, in an affirmative action way to minority run companies. They've been doing that through the regulatory process. Um, I, I think, in spite of how much we see the white supremacists on TV, they don't really represent a huge all, part of the all country. Two dozen of them in Washington <laughs> exactly. this past weekend. Exactly. Yeah, by what thousands of uh, of uh, right, but there was there was good people on both. There was good people on both sides. All sides. All, <laughs> all, all sides. Whatever that race, means. There was ra- there's racism on. All- did, did, did Trump tweet about that? Uh, that uh, that no, he simply said he's against all forms of racism. Which is a really courageous comment. Yeah, that's bold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that this issue has been pushed off to the side from most people. I think that um, it's funny because what what people are most dissatisfied 
and, and expressing through Trumpism with is the idea that we're not a meritocracy anymore, that hard work mm. and all those things don't necessarily accrue benefits to you. And what Trump has done is he's given people who are failing in our system an excuse by saying it's not you. You know, it's kind of like breaking up with somebody, you know, it's not – it's not you, it's me. <laughs> you know, and he's giving them an excuse right, right, by saying right. it's really not your fault that you're yeah. failing. It's somebody else's fault. All right, we're going to take a short break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about 3D printed guns. A quick shout-out to some of the other local businesses that make this uh, program possible. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant at East 5th and Walnut, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Uh, thanks also to Ritual Cafe at 13th and Locust in downtown Des Moines. Uh, fair trade tea, fair trade coffee, and an all-vegetarian menu. Thanks also to Sergeant's Garage, located at 6th and College. They've been uh, servicing four generations of Fallon mobiles, and they work on any make, any model, any year. Give them a shout. That's Sergeant's Garage. And finally, thanks to uh, Catering by Sid. Uh, Sid Cohn uses fresh ingredients, and every one of her catering arrangements is custom-made. We'll be back in a couple minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host, with uh, Dr. Charles Goldman in the studio with me. We're broadcasting live from the uh, Iowa State Fairgrounds. Well, not quite. We're just a couple miles away. But uh, we're in Des Moines, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, at the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM, just east of the Iowa State Capitol building. Uh, later in the program, uh, we're going to be um, talking about how the right has weaponized the First Amendment. And if you're tuning into our community-owned stations, we'll discuss how produce, vegetables, just aren't the same as they used to be. In fact, they're way less nutritious. Interesting. We'll also talk about how if, you, if you're a fan of warm water, you're going to love Earth's oceans in the new climate era. But first, um, these uh, 3D-printed guns. Now, Charles, let's start at ground zero, if you will, because... Maybe there's someone left out there who's as ignorant as I am. But when I think of printer, I think of uh, putting a piece of paper down, pushing a button, and getting a copy. So I hear a 3D printer, and it doesn't quite register. I don't quite see how that produces a gun or anything beyond a piece of paper. So the uh, the 3D printer um, is an industrial implement. Most people don't have them at home, um, which is used primarily for plastic part creation or you know plastic item creation and and what it's doing is simply it's taking a it's given a program which is a 3d picture of what you want to produce so let's say you want to produce a gun barrel a cylinder okay it simply moves back and forth like a printer does and it, it lays down one layer it moves up some specified less than a millimeter distance and then it lays down another layer. And when you start laying these layers on top of each other, you eventually get the item that you've programmed for. So it's um, it's like Silly Putty. No. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just... It's, 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 I'm trying to get yeah. it to a, something I can relate to. Right, well, if you're going to make... It's, a, like, it's like clay. It's if like, you're going like to make making... a gun barrel, the first one you're going to lay down is going to be a very thin strip of plastic. The okay. next one will be two thin strips of plastic that are going to be contiguous to the first one you laid down. Eventually, you're going to be halfway through, and all you're going to be doing is laying down a thin strip of plastic at the top and a thin strip of plastic at the bottom, and the rest of it's just going to be a void, which is and where the hole for the cylinder is. And you, you can do that with enough precision to create a gun that actually works. Right. 
Wow. And at least a plastic gun that works. Now, metallic 3D printing is very expensive, but that would be the next step. Right. So, folks, what do you think? Uh, 3D guns, good idea, bad idea, crazy talk. Anyway, we're talking about that. And also the way the right has weaponized the First Amendment. Give us a call at 515-528-8122 if you'd like to join the conversation. Yeah, so let's move away from the weaponized part for a minute, although okay. it, it, it's interesting that these two issues do converge at the same place, because um, if people remember last week's thing, or the week before, was the 3D gun scare, right? And what, what exactly, what, what happened? Well, what happened was, is that there's a gentleman by the name of Cody Wilson down in Texas, who yeah. runs an entity Warm, called... Warm, guy who... He's he's basically he describes himself as a crypto arsonist. I'm not sure what the crypto part. He wasn't is. at the white supremacist rally in D.C. No, no, no. He okay. he claims not to be a white supremacist. Okay. He says he's just an. I'm sorry. He's a. I said crypto arsonist. He's 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 an anarchist. He's a, a, a partially trained lawyer. A crypto arsonist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's a crypto. <laughs> that one by me. Crypto Charles, anarchist. <laughs> what would, what would that look? What would a crypto right. arsonist look so like? So basically, what what Wilson. <laughs> had done was about five years ago, because this story actually goes back to 2013, he had put out plans on the internet for a single-shot gun called the... Liberator. The Liberator, right, right, based on a design that actually came out in the 1940s that Americans were going to drop guns behind the lines to the resistance. And liberate... And that's why he... Exactly, exactly. And he also had put plans out there for an AR-15, which could be partially 3D printed. Um, he was stopped from doing that by, of all things, the State Department <laughs> because they claimed that uh, he had violated international export rules in terms of gun production. And, and then this had gone on for five years, and then the Trump administration State Department decided that they really did not have the legal right to suppress his speech. And this is what's interesting. He's actually not making the claim that he's protected by the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms. He's making the claim that he's protected by the First Amendment, which is the right to freedom of speech. And this is a prior restraint of free speech. I thought maybe also the Commerce Clause. Uh, no. It, 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 it's <laughs> well, an interesting question. Yeah. The, the, people may remember that the same argument came up with encryption programs early yeah. on mm-hmm. as to whether they were a national security risk. Right. And allowing people to private people to encrypt their conversations or to have virtual private networks also violated national security interests and ultimately, I guess, the Commerce Clause too. But no, this is this is a really interesting issue, which is um, well, first of all, what's the real risk from these? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the uh, typical battle lines are being drawn. Correct. Those who love guns are very comfortable with three D printing of guns. Well, those who uh, love I, guns will probably not do anything with these plans because the problem with the Liberator is it's just as likely to explode and kill you as it is yeah, I, to I, shoot I, the bullets forward. Seen, I've seen uh, images of that happening, but is that is that is that just the fly, is, that, is that just the uh, contractor's problem? The, the person building it, it's the they material, screwed up and they didn't do it well, right? Well, no, it's the material being used okay. and the fact that you're creating an explosion, a, a controlled explosion to, to push the projectile so forward. So Liberator, 3D printed Liberator guns at are least in plastic. To, at least in plastic are probably not likely. Maybe the Surgeon General needs to have a warning on that. <laughs> That's right. Warning, this gun could blow up in your face. Use it at your own risk. Well, the big question is, there's already 300 million guns out there. There are plenty of ways to get guns in this country without a background check, right? We already know that. Yeah. Um, 
They're, they're, you can they're... go to the gun shows and you don't get background checked at most of them. Um, we know crazy people, um, you know, like the, the shooter at Sandy Hook, multiple guns, <laughs> multiple guns them, in yeah. the house. Um, and so I guess the question is, what is I think what got people's notice was the idea that they'd be undetectable by metal detectors. And in fact, that is against the law. Because they're made of plastic. Correct. Right. And it is against the law to produce any weapon that cannot be detected by a, medical, a metal detector. Right. Um, so in reality, as much as we immediately had the hue and cry, in and, a country with 300 the, million and guns. And predictable Ed Markey legislation to ban them. Exactly. Yep. In, in a country with 300 million guns, why would you go to the you know, extent and the cost of getting a plastic gun printed when you just go out and buy a gun. You know, you like college students do. They drive down well, to Georgia, they buy guns, they drive them back to New York. The pride of creating your own in the safety and comfort of your home while listening to your favorite Beethoven symphony. Right. I mean, I, 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 you know, clearly there, there are risks. But the, the fact is that a workable weapon cannot be entirely plastic. It's going to have to have some metal in it to make it's stable enough to actually fire more than one bullet. So how many of these uh, explode in the in the uh, gun user's face? Well, do we, do we have any any We don't we don't know. I mean, we that? we don't First of all, there's only been like 3 arrests nationwide okay. for having a plastic weapon the in your possession. The FDA is not testing these? No, I don't think the FDA. Maybe with crash dummies. <laughs> so, but I but I do think it's an interesting issue, which is and this whole issue of being a speech issue and not really a gun control issue. Yeah, how how is it a speech issue? I don't I don't get well, that. Well, because he's not distributing the gun. Yeah, but he's distributing the plans. Yeah, yeah, but speech. I understand I I think I understand speech affecting what you say and what you write. I think it's been a real stretch to say that that money is speech and that's been the argument of those who think that money should be unregulated, unlimited in politics, but how is being able to you know, to produce a plastic gun in your home have anything to do with speech? Well, the the question here is... Why, why shouldn't you be able to is, throw marijuana but, in your basement? But what matter? is Cody Wilson doing? I mean, yeah, another example of the same issue. Okay, so until the Supreme Court decided that sports wagering was going to be legal in every state, if they so desired, mm-hmm. um, there was... You could only gamble in, what, two places on, on sports, Vegas and Atlantic City. Yeah, and... And... Legally. Legally. <laughs> now, yet, the existence of the NFL is completely predicated on the existence of gambling. Right. Because why are people watching games on Thursday night except because they have money on them, right? Especially when games are like Indianapolis versus Seattle, right? <laughs> it, it's all about the, the gambling. And so services that would sell picks never were taken – to court or arrest these people were never arrested, right? Because they were selling information, even though the end result was clearly going to be an illegal activity in ninety-eight percent of the country. So, it you know it's really interesting because what's happened in our country right now is um, liberals now are becoming interested in suppression of free speech. Yet it was liberals who set the uh, the prelude 
to what the right has been able to do. Can I take that quote and see if I can sell it to Fox News? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean it's interesting because there was there was a um, a good piece about the weaponization of the First Amendment again in the New York Times, in which they point out that the 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 kinds of cases that set up for Citizens United, for instance, were actually cases brought by the left-leaning liberal lawyers in the 70s to allow for unlimited contributions to their candidates because it was a free speech issue. Mm. Um, the Your buddy, Ralph Nader... <laughs> Everybody's buddy Ralph Everybody's Nader. Everybody's buddy I mean, Ralph Nader. So going back to, again, another decision that was made by a conservative court at that time in the mid-1970s, uh, there was a case in which uh, Ralph Nader's, uh, I, I think it was public action or whatever his group was at that time. Brought public, a, public citizen. Public citizen. Yeah. Brought a case to the U.S. Supreme Court in which Connecticut had said that um, you could not advertise prices on pharmaceuticals. And so the Nader's group brought the case and won that, in fact, you could advertise prices on pharmaceuticals. That, of course, has now led to many of the you know, reduction in restraints on advertising. And um, look, at, look at how many cases. The union case, the recent union case in terms of the dues paying right. you know, by non-members was decided as a free speech issue. Yeah. Obviously, Citizens United, free speech issue. Okay, so yeah, good points, and uh, and then so how how do you see the uh, you, know, you could talk about the right wing, uh, or the, maybe you say far right, whatever, uh, weaponizing the First Amendment. Well, in their view, was the liberals of the seventies and sixties weaponized the First Amendment? Right, and now, and and now it's going the other direction. Right. So, in, in spite of the, the this false notion that you can read the Constitution. Or, and read the Federalist Papers and divine the original intent of the founders is ludicrous because what's determining how the First Amendment is being interpreted is who's sitting on the court at the time that that case comes before them. Right. And these are the kinds of things that people need to understand. I mean, I know that people are getting on TV all the time and saying elections matter, Jill Stein voters. <laughs> um, but, Ralph Nader voters. Right. In, 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 a, in, a, in a government where increasingly no policy is made by the legislative, the legislative body, they put out advisories, essentially, or they don't do anything, right? right. It, it yeah. means that, that essentially all public policy is being made at the federal level in regulatory agencies or in the courts. And the move from the liberal protection of free speech in the 60s and 70s to the conservative protection of free speech has given you m almost all of the things which bedevil us right now, the Hobby Lobby decisions. Because remember, mm -hmm. since we know how civic-minded, uh, how civics-minded the American population is, the First Amendment isn't just about free speech. It's also about the right to assemble, the right to petition your government for redress of grievances, the right to freedom of religion, and also the, the uh, protection from the establishment of a religion of the state. And this weekend, we saw a couple dozen, um, you know, white supremacists. I know they have a different uh, different name they choose to, to describe themselves, but yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, a couple dozen uh, basically 
uh, met by a wall of thousands of protesters who are, you know, opposed to their agenda. Right. Uh, and yet they were very heavily protected by, 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 by police, by security. And uh, I'm okay with that. Even though I despise their message, even though I think they're, they're being empowered in part by, by, by President Trump, they have a right to say what crazy talk they want to say. That, that's, that's okay. They have a right to do that. And I had no trouble seeing them being protected by law enforcement given the potential conflict that might arise well, between them and the, and the protesters. And, who, I mean, and I would have been with those protesters had I been in Correct. In and, and, and I think as someone who's a progressive and a liberal, that, that is the position you have to take because that's no different than the case, again, from the 70s where the ACLU defended the white supremacists slash neo-Nazis who marched through a Jewish suburb of Chicago, Skokie. Right. And they were – their right to do that and assemble was – protected by Jewish ACLU lawyers. And right. <laughs> it, that's the problem. You, you, know, you, can't, you can't have it – in some ways, you can't have it both ways, which is the, the role of the state when you have an assembly like you're talking about, where you can predict there's going to be violence. The role of the state is to keep there from being violence. There was a brilliant front line on this week about what happened, what really happened in Charlottesville. What really happened in Charlottesville was not the reprehensible nature of the the white supremacists who showed up. It was a complete failure of the police department there, of the state police in Virginia, and of the state government. Because they didn't give the, the the Charlottesville police the intelligence of what was going on, what had happened multiple times at other confrontations in other states, and the police did not keep the two groups separated. Yeah, and, and why, 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 why did that failure happen? I mean, it, it was pretty well known what was going what, what was going down. They claimed did, did no. They, did, they did not. They claimed they were not given the sort of intelligence. I, I know some want to say that. Well, there was empathy. The, the there were those within the police department, within law enforcement, who were empathetic with the radical rights agenda, and so they kind of stepped back and didn't get too involved. That, well, there, that, that there is a made. troubling. There is a troubling aspect of you know the the african american gentleman who was almost killed in the garage that garage was right next to a police station and there's film of the police standing outside of that police station knowing full well what was going on being confronted by another african american man saying he's being killed in there this is your job so that's an element yes it is still the south it is, even though it's the home of uva it is still the south but it was it was a it, there wasn't a clear strategy for what they were supposed to do. What they were supposed to do was keep those two groups separated. That's the only thing they should have done. Other than that, they had to allow, by what we're talking about, the free speech of both sides. Which they did successfully in Washington, D.C. Correct. Well, yeah. because D.C., they understood, having seen well, Charlottesville, yeah, what was going to yeah, happen. Yeah. They, they didn't have – yeah. So maybe Charlottesville law enforcement there would have done a better job had they known what to expect. But, you know – it's hard. It's hard not to imagine that you shouldn't expect, you know, something along those lines from happening. You know? I agree. Yeah, I agree. But, um, but again, I think that we. This is the era we're in. Yeah. And this is and this is unfortunately, you're you know things that seem like great arguments in the past can come back and haunt you. Now, I still think the biggest First Amendment issue facing us is is the issue of money in politics. Uh, that has gone from bad to worse to absolutely. Uh, horrible, mm-hmm. and there's no end to that in sight. Uh, it's almost impossible to consider running for office, even a low-level office like 
a state representative district representing what thirty thousand people. It seems almost impossible to imagine running for such a such a seat without uh, accumulating a you know thirty, forty, fifty grand. That's what you're expected to raise at a minimum as, as an entry level. Mm-hmm. And as long as we allow money to flow indiscriminately from all sorts of sources without any checks and balances, without any clarity and uh, and 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 um, and you know, understanding of who's making those donations and why, you know, we're going to see. You know, we're going to see less and less, uh, uh, you know, more and more, I want to say, more and more people who should be in office not inclined to run because they don't want to play that game. Uh, I, I don't see that that is ever going to change. I think that... Well, what about repealing Citizens United for... Well, well you can't repeal Citizens well, United. Right. You would have to pass a law and... Um, sure, of course, yes. Right. I don't, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I, w- I would make the argument... That what needs to change is we need to get rid of the two-party system. And the only way of getting rid of the two-party system is to change the way we vote. So get rid of one vote. You need to go to some sort of either rank order voting or early runoff voting. That would allow people – because, you know – And the only way to do that is to get rid of one of the two parties, replace one of the two parties. Neither of the two parties. Well, one, one party has been replaced. The Republican Party has been replaced by the, the National Socialist <laughs> and Party. And some would argue the Democratic but, Party has been replaced by, by corporate elites. Corporate elites, right. No, I mean, I, I think that that needs to be the focus. The focus needs to be to make it so – see, because the technology that requires a lot of money is TV. TV has a diminishing importance in many ways in elections. We've seen that. The Russians didn't go on TV and say vote for Donald Trump, right? No, they went on Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> and it didn't cost them all that much money. Yeah. There's a lot of ways of running campaigns now that don't cost you as much money. But the problem is getting on the ballot and and being seen as a viable candidate right. on that ballot. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up people voting there's for a just pub- There's a public impression that only a Democrat or only a Republican can win. Correct. And that, that's despite the fact that we have two U.S. senators who are uh, independent, mm-hmm. that we've had governors of Maine and Minnesota and where else I can't remember who have been elected as independents. Again, right. it's not common. I think the last time we had – well, we have an independent in the Iowa legislature, but that David Johnson was a Republican, got disgusted with Trump, switched, and he's, a, he, and he's now getting out because there's no way he'd win re-election right. in that district. So you know, I think the last time Iowa had an independent state legislator was the 1930s, I believe. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how we – yeah, you could say that both parties have in some sense been replaced, but they haven't been replaced by anyone with an interest in this kind of systemic reform. Well, because simply getting elected has become the purpose of many of those – of both parties. Right. And, I, yeah. and a lot of people within that party. Right. See, because this is uh, – one thing I admire about Trump is that he has a position now in which he can do and affect the flow of history here. And he's doing the best he can to do that, right? <laughs> yes. You know, and, and – As frightening as that is. As frightening as it is. And I don't understand people elected into the Senate or the Congress who don't see that as the same opportunity. Yeah. Instead, all they're interested in is where can I get more money well, when you have to, to run, run next time? When you have to raise over a million dollars every two years to keep a, a seat in the U.S. House, yeah, well, that's pretty much your job, isn't it? <laughs> it is your job. I mean, no, I mean, and, and you got you got you got to pander to the interest groups that have that money, right? You know, you know, I, I I think at some point one of these parties has to simply be replaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't I mean because the Republican Party yeah, was taken over. The Democratic Party also really co opted, yes, right? But but not by forces that have any sincere interest in the kind of reform that's needed. And so I don't. I I think you have to have a strong. Your starting point has to be a strong platform. 
uh, of commitment to that level of reform, where money has to be, you know, getting money out of politics or somehow reducing its influence, uh, like you said, through instant runoff voting, mm -hmm. through voter reform, through, through election reforms that uh, are going to, um, you know, repeal some of the crazy stuff that's been done at the state level uh, across the country by, by attorneys, uh, by, by uh, secretaries of state mm -hmm. who don't have the public's interest in mind. That, that has to be, I think, the starting point, the, the, the basic foundational principles of whatever party is going to attempt to, to wrest control from one or the other. And I don't think till we have that, we're going to have, we're not going to see, we're not going to see any real ability to, to have those, uh, have that conversation. I agree. I mean, you're not seeing a lot of profiles and courage with the present system. No. There was a great uh, Doonesbury cartoon. I don't often read Doonesbury cartoon because the print is too small. <laughs> but there was a, a, Doons, a Doonesbury cartoon featuring a, a U.S. congressman, and somebody was saying, so I hear you have no spine. And he's, what, what? And as you go further like and further into the, uh, <laughs> into the strip, he's, he's, he's more and more bent over until he's almost, uh, almost into a ball. Yeah. <laughs> That's maybe a little bit harsh. Not all Congress creatures are that way, but they're certainly collectively – uh, a distinct lack of uh, backbone when it comes to uh, challenging special interests and challenging President Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely clear. Yeah. Well, Charles, it's been good talking with you. Folks, if you're listening on our community-owned station, uh, station, stay tuned. We're going to talk about food and climate in the next couple of segments. Again, if you're listening on our station here uh, on, on either the uh, website, on Facebook, or on the dial at 1260 AM or 96.5 FM. This program is live every Monday uh, from 11 to noon. And, uh, you know, again, please feel free to uh, write uh, comments, questions, uh, suggestions on programs to ed at FallonForum.com. Again, you're listening to the Fallon Forum live on La Reina, 1260 AM, 96.5 FM, Des Moines. All right, so welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. You know, we're always told we should eat our vegetables, right? And I think a lot of people now realize, well, it's probably better to eat organic than chemically treated vegetables. Well, you know, it's not just that anymore. It's also a question of what's in your soil. And um, a lot of soil has been uh, depleted, has been denurtured. And, uh, and that's um, a, a factor of agricultural practices. Uh, climate change is also affecting it. Uh, Nick uh, Goser, the uh, director of the Soil Health Partnership, that's a, um, that's a program launched by the Corn Growers Association. Um, uh, you know, everybody across the spectrum, you know, traditional, conventional farmers, I should say, and traditional, more organic farmers are all seeing that soil health is critically important. And an another thing that's playing into this, Charles, and this should be no surprise, is um, climate change. Climate change is, um, again, this is... This is the guy with the corn grower speaking. Climate change is 100% real, and our farmers are experiencing it this experiencing this year to year. It's absolutely worth seeing the hard data. So mm -hmm. this is a, I mean, the corn growers historically have been aligned with the Republican Party, with the Iowa Farm Bureau, with the National Farm Bureau. Well, they're aligned with anybody who will take a foodstuff and turn it into gasoline. <laughs> well, <laughs> not, not, don't sell them short. Not just gasoline, but high fructose corn syrup, <laughs> which that is an essential food group, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, but, but I mean, they, they get it. They understand what's going on. And again, it's being reflected in the quality of the food product itself. Well, actually, it, it, this is a really interesting point because you're, you're focusing on the quality of the soil. But there's also um, extremely interesting research, and we have no idea why this is the case. 
But increasing CO2 levels, you remember one of the big arguments from the climate change deniers is that increasing CO2 levels right. is actually good for plants. Right, because plants eat that stuff well, up. Well, because plants use it for photosynthesis. And in fact, that's true, except for one problem, which is that you, you drive the plant up to a point where it still needs the nitrogen from the soil to be able to utilize the CO2 from the air. Right. The other problem they're finding, and which is actually pretty scary, is that the quality, the nutritional quality of the crop goes down with increasing CO2 levels in the air. And no one's exactly sure why, but they point out that grains in particular lose astronomical amounts of protein that would normally be transferred into the yeah. diet. Yeah. And that they are estimating that food crops are losing enough of their key nutrients that it's gonna cause a protein deficiency in an estimated 150 million people worldwide and also zinc and, and iron deficiencies in the same number of people worldwide. So that and, and, and again, this is not just projection of the future. This decline in, in, uh, in, in, in the value of the food product is already being measured. It's being measured, and, and no one, again, the scientists don't know what the cause of it is, but they no. do know they're seeing it, and they're seeing it across all kinds of food stuff. Well, here's another agricultural pl problem related to climate change is that uh, as, as, I can, as I, will, I, I can tell you from my experience, some crops don't pollinate very well when the temperature gets above 90 degrees. And mm -hmm. I've seen that in tomatoes over in recent years. There was one year, a few years back, where it got, my, my tomatoes went in kind of late, it hit 90 really early, and no pollination occurred. I had no tomatoes in August, September. I had some in October, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, but the, the plant found a way to adapt, and now that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes those changes are going to be so stressful that plants won't adapt. And and take corn again. Corn is everybody's favorite crop, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, but uh, corn also needs uh, to make sure that that temperature needs to be below ninety degrees for that corn to pollinate. And if it it gets above there, you've got problems. Well, the the other thing too is that. You know, we've talked about GMOs before on the program. You know, and I remember... Did we really? Yeah, a number of years ago, we, <laughs> we had lot, that yes. discussion about the GMOs. And my feeling was, if you're buying a Twinkie, it doesn't really matter whether it's GMO or not. And, and it doesn't really matter, matter whether you're eating it out of the package or <laughs> deep frying it and eating it on exactly. a stick. It's still a Twinkie. But the thing, one thing about GMOs, which are harmful is that we, have, we, we are picking plants for certain characteristics that have nothing to do with their nutritional value. So for instance, tomatoes. I mean, I grew, I grew up in California, but I lived in California for 10 years, and there was a lot of tomato growing around the area where I lived in Central Valley. And those tomatoes are GMO, they're altered, so that they can be machine harvested, which means they have to be hard as rocks. So they're not flavorful, <laughs> right, right. the nutritional value drops as a consequence of having modified them just so you could you could yeah. machine harvest them because they were only going to tomato sauce anyway, so who cares? <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and to take a, this, uh, the research that's out on this is pretty interesting. Here's an example about broccoli. Uh, that's you know considered mm -hmm. one of the most uh, nutritious vegetables um, it, among the cruciferous vegetables. Yes. Right, and 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 one that George Bush hated. Right, uh, <laughs> but H, uh, H W Bush. H W. That's right. Let's make sure we don't impugn both he, Bushes. He paid the political price for that's saying right. he didn't like broccoli. Yeah, yeah, and and of course Mike Dukakis paid a different kind of political well, price. In the for, tank. Uh, well, that and also uh, and also <laughs> suggesting that Iowa should grow endive. But um, <laughs> so but but seventy years ago, seventy years ago, broccoli contained twice the calcium on average mm -hmm. and more than five times the amount of vitamin A as it does today. That's right. And that's, uh, that, that's, it's that should be a huge wake-up call. It's across all sorts of fruits and vegetables. 
and it's a function of, of climate change, of soil depletion, and yeah. of selection for certain characteristics that have nothing to do with nutritional value. Yeah, all right. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, I spent some time on the Atlantic Ocean as a kid, the North Atlantic, and the North Atlantic is numbing. The only thing colder, the only body of water colder than the North Atlantic is Lake Superior, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I could not stand having to get into that water to have some, some aquatic fun. Um, but again, you know, that's probably not going to be a problem in the new climate era because the oceans are warming so uh, rapidly and so dramatically that, uh, that um, yeah, we're going to be able to swim in lots of places and, and not have to worry about cold weather. So yay, climate change. Look mm. what it's doing to our waters. All good? Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> I, I think it's inescapable that people are aware of the consequences of relatively minor uh rise in, in ocean levels. It means only a couple of degrees or less that generates the intense hurricanes in the Caribbean yeah. that we now see. It, it, it kills coral. Kills, well, the coral is being bleached all over the world. That's yeah. correct. And, and, and the food chain is heavily intertwined. Yeah. All of these yeah, yeah. are playing a role. All these things in the ocean play a role. And the amazing thing is that climate, the consequences of climate change on land would be far worse than they already are were it not for the oceans acting as a heat sink. Yeah. But the oceans now are, are beginning to show the consequences of being the heat sink for the Earth at this point. And um, it, it, again, this is a complex set of factors. And it's very hard, I think, for a lot of people to wrap their head around the idea that bleaching of coral is something that can be devastating for humankind also. Uh, you know, more and more people are getting it, and I, I just wish that would translate into the kind of policy changes and the kind of personal lifestyle changes. I mean, even even as more and more people are understanding that we've got a major problem, the sales of SUVs and pickup trucks continues to march on, and there are some companies that don't even make small cars anymore. That's correct. <laughs> Which I, 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 I really hope that we start waking up to that reality. Well, I mean, I think... You, we, we're seeing the consequences of unbridled freedom and unbrid- more importantly, unbridled consumerism. Yeah. And um, you're absolutely right. I, it's, it's and, and you know, just to take it from the oceans mm-hmm. to the land, this past, this, past, um, uh, this, this year in Finland, uh, north of the Arctic Circle, uh, we saw all-time record highs. Right. And um, yeah, 90 degrees, in fact. Mm-hmm. North of the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, meanwhile, in Africa, 124 degrees. Right. Crazy. 124 degrees in parts of Africa. Right. And I believe in Oman, it was 116 yeah. at night anyway, after the sun had gone down. Hopefully, we'll wake up soon. In the <laughs> meantime, we'll keep broadcasting the show and sounding the alarm. This is the Fallon Forum. Thanks for tuning in. Ed Fallon here with Dr. Charles Goldman. <laughs>